uh, with us in studio this morning. Dr. Jennifer Cassidy, International uh, Relations Lecturer at Oxford University. Dr. Maeve O'Rourke, Lecturer in Human Rights at NUI Galway. Uh, Daniel McConnell, Political Editor with the Irish Examiner. Kieran Hancock, Business Editor with the Irish Times. Eddie Malloy, Management Consultant. And... We also have Sheila Brady, security analyst at Star Consultancy. And obviously this week there's only one place to start and that's with that absolute tragedy. You went through it uh, in your paper, Daniel, and what and what actually happened yeah. as opposed to who said what or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I suppose the, the movements of the two from the, the cab and also the trailer and how they, they conjoined or, or came together uh, was a bit of a painstaking exercise that, that, that was done by journalists over the last few days but what we know is that the, the truck part the front part of the truck left Ireland last Sunday last, the, so this, last, day this day week. last week yeah. across the Irish Sea um, and at, in around the, um, at the same time sorry on Tuesday the, the trailer part well, when it went over where did it, it went, go it went via Hollyhead so it went Dublin Port Hollyhead and, and then across. And then across that down there yeah Um the the trailer part which held the 39 uh, uh, victims uh, arrived in Zerbrugger on Tuesday and at that stage do um, we know where we it don't came know. from and, and, and information is still very sketchy where it came okay. from what we do know is that the trailer was uh, rented from an Irish operation called GTR and it was, uh, was logged in their, their yard essentially in Monaghan on the 15th of October but that gap between October 15th and when it arrived in Zerbrugger we don't know Um it made its way from Zeebrugger over to uh, Purfield in in Essex, and it was which is l- along the Thames. Yes, along yep. the Thames, uh, and it was late <clears throat> Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, that the two ca- uh, came together, and a short time later, the, the grim discovery and, was and, made. And, and how did they come together? Well, th- again, this is all subject to to the investigations. We, yeah. Like what, we, like the what we know is that the the trailer part is subject to a tracking device. That the it's it's the, the its company has a tracking device that's now obviously in the hands of the police. But what is very interesting now is to see track the movements because there was the initial um, when when Mars Robinson's name first emerged. Yeah. They said was well, did the truck actually come all the way through Ireland initially, and then that was discounted. You know, it it it, yeah. it, it was made. It became clear that it came via Zeebrugger yeah. in that way. But what is still very interesting to find out are the exact movements of both the the cab and the trailer between October 15th and when the grim discovery was made. Right. And there was kind of additional um, information thrown into the pot last night about flights and that they came through uh, China... Yeah, yeah. Like so, so what has been happening through the week is that you know we've had this, the the discovery of the text message from the Vietnamese woman at, uh, to her to, to her, her mother, mother yeah. which obviously, uh, which is obviously like anyone reading that, your heart could not go out. But I suppose when the police initially made the discovery and made their initial press conference, they were saying there were thirty nine Chinese nationals. Obviously, that has broadened out. Yeah. But this is going all over the place. You've got flights from China. You have, you know, you into have, France, into France, you into have, Britain, and then back out of Britain. But then you also have other people who are, you know, behind the scenes, and we're not in a position to name these people. But their movements are also being tracked as well. You've had arrests at Dublin Port yesterday. So this is a very broad. Okay. Uh, investigation that can, and and I think as the papers are reflecting this morning, it's not just the thirty nine who lost their lives. This is much broader in terms of the numbers who were being trafficked. Okay. Well, um, um, Sheila Brady uh, joined us, uh, particularly because of her own expertise in this kind of area. Sheila, you worked for a long time as a guard. You've worked in the area of security within the EU, 
and the UN and you're now a consultant in the area of terrorism and organised uh, crime and you co-founded SAR Consultancy which conducts research and analysis in the area of security. Talk us through what it is we are witnessing or not witnessing as the case may be and you know a bit because you were in Libya uh, and a number of other places where there were people trying to migrate. Tell us about where you were. Um, so I was uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, Nigeria and Libya predominantly with the UN and the EU missions. And like you said, there's, you know, in all three cases or all three regions at least, there's a high percentage of people from within those countries or regions trying to get out and then also they are on routes for other nations to go through. I think what we're hearing about in this incident is in some way different than what we've been hearing since the kind of 2015 peak of that migration route through Libya across the sea and I think it's just indications of how complex this is. I think well, is the reason that the, that, that flow stemmed money? that the EU paid money and promised money to the Turkish and to the Greeks, more or less keep them over there, don't let them near us. So I think I agree with what you've said, but I think these two routes that we're seeing, we'll say in this incident and the the one through Libya, are not necessarily related in the context of this incident. But I agree um, since that peak in 2015 there's been quite a lot done to actually secure the border further out. There's positive and negative implications of that. Um, It's not just, you know, that it's a good thing that the numbers are dropping but we can see from IOM's figures that since 2015 year on year we're seeing a drop which is positive in one sense but actually it doesn't indicate the true story of what may be happening potentially around that border. And say uh, in terms of how people get it's by sea obviously the Mediterranean after that very surprising uh, vote in um, in the European Parliament uh, this week like who's trying to get in how are they trying to get in? So I think there's, like, without going into the real complexity of there's a number of ways people do get in. So depending on the route, it can start by as little as on foot, on car, trucks, uh, ships. You know, really any planes, any method can be used and is being used. Yeah. And it really depends on the group that are running the operation, the type of people that are moving, so if they're being smuggled or if they're being trafficked. Um, And really it comes down to how much they can afford to pay. And what is the going rate, if I may ask? It really depends. We'll say the route that we're talking about, probably in particular to this case, it can range from about 10,000 up to 40,000, you see. in the, the, the This is serious It's money. serious, serious. It's a commodity. And the mm. interesting thing, and I think people sometimes aren't, like, it's not that they don't know, it's just that they're, they're not maybe informed. It's rarely one type of criminality. So I interviewed... Uh, people that had smuggled people across the border in the Balkans, along that Balkan route, um, and it was never just one commodity, so they might have gone with people and have come back with something else, so it could be weapons, it could be drugs if it was small scale, like just somebody driving three or four people across the border, it could be coming back with elements that were like higher rates of tax or VAT within their own country, mobile phones at the time, different things like that but then it goes on to, as I say being part of huge black industry that's creating billions and millions for people. 
and with a lot of hardship and and in this case death. And and where are the security forces and the police and investigators? Obviously, what we're talking about where we are today. But broadly speaking, there's been a lot of improvements, and there between Europol and Interpol, there is a lot of cooperation, and that can be seen in the prosecutions that have been um, gained. But in often times, we have to actually have dead bodies for really big investigations to happen or to come to the. To their attention. Do you remember the, the, the cockle pickers? Yes, yeah. Somehow it was so tragic. Um, absolute slavery. Did Who got done for that? So uh, there was two prosecutions within England and then a number of years, I think it was three years later, there was uh, convictions in Belgium. And I think that is a really positive indication that it's not being just left to the country who um, where these tragedies are happening or coming to the attention. There's a lot of cooperation. But what we really need to see is convictions that uh, reflect the route that people are taking so we need them to start in the start or end but at least to be seen in their home country through the routes which is indicative that we're prosecuting all elements that are this is not a domestically run um, <coughs> issue from the countries that people are going to this is a highly strategic network that is not and I would, would go on as far to say it's not usually just criminals. Many of these countries, there has to be complicity with state authorities. You would think so. You cannot have that much money going across these borders within, you know, within the commodities that are being shipped uh, in the manner that they are being shipped without some sort of state uh, cooperation at some level. At some level. Uh, I also saw one of the, in one of the cases that was taken, the driver got done very severely but the organiser only got three years yes yeah and now I, I know from the British looking back at their cases they're very good at trying to uh, apportion the blame across everybody but it's not necessarily apportioned uh, equally or in in, um, in relation to the role people yeah. play in it or the pay that they get at it and what happens is they're trying to deter people like drivers or people like that <coughs> own the trailers and different things like yeah. that but actually this needs to be much more holistic because if if we only target these groups within one country it's highly likely that they'll just go elsewhere why is, yeah why is the UK you know, a source country for this. It's because people know these networks are so adept at getting people in and we need to show them that actually there's a, it's that, that risk um, reward for, uh, you know, right. proportionality that yeah. they assess is actually not worth it. I, I was thinking last night, but then I thought, well, you know, that's not going to happen. Like when, when people come here, um, they go up, if they come by <coughs> aeroplane or whatever they come by, they go up and they say, I'm looking for protection and I'm looking for um, harbour here. And then they're taken into the system. Now, we can talk about the system in a, in a few minutes. But if they flew to France, well, one allegedly <coughs> flew to France and then somehow got from France into the UK and then got deported from the UK back to France, would they not have had rights to seek asylum? Yes? Yeah, I think, um, I suppose maybe there's some, obviously a degree of fluency between um, people who come for economic reasons, people who end up trafficked, people who seek asylum, whether for reasons in their home country or what happens to them on the way. But from my perspective, 
when it comes to state complicity, we really need to be thinking about what drives people into the system of trafficking. It's not just about stopping traffickers. It's actually about properly organising our migration policy and laws to recognise the reality that, number one, people are going to continue to want to migrate. Um, There was a UN Development Programme report out this month called Scaling Fences, looking at the voices of irregular African migrants to Europe, finding that only 2% would have not chosen to come had they known more about the dangers en route, that migration will increase because Mm. global development has been uneven, has caused massive inequality and massive poverty, and climate change, of course, is going to contribute to more people (coughs) wanting to migrate. And European policy and law needs to broaden opportunities for people to come to work. This report finds that the European labour markets are absorbing people who come undocumented. Even in Ireland, for example, the Migrant Rights Centre of Ireland conducted research with over a thousand undocumented migrants a couple of years ago in Ireland and found that 89% of them are in employment. Even here we can see a major problem, for example, with home care. And we have an ageing population yeah. and still on our ineligible list for work permits for non-EU um, workers is home care, um, child care uh, and all kinds of care workers. Now, we know that our home care industri- industry is it, is economy in a, is being creaking. absolutely supported, though, with many people who are undocumented in Ireland. And the MRCI says, and they're right, I think, that it will be a defining social justice and equality issue for Ireland for the next 20 years. How do we actually deal with reality that migration is actually increasing? Mm-hmm. Because of what we are doing, of course, we are not just deserving of the opportunity and privilege we have in Europe. We have that because other people do not. Um, Migration is increasing, climate justice will cause it to increase. And what we really need is to actually recognise the benefit that our economies get and the duty we have to allow the migration that happens. Okay, and I mean, many people say, even though it damaged her politically, but it didn't um, destroy her. Um, that Angela Merkel may have been as wise and as self-interested as well as as generous as it appeared because an ageing population, no growth in population and, and educated people coming from Syria. Anyway, Maeve, thank you indeed for that. Uh, let me go to you, uh, Jennifer, um, international relations. Where do, How do you look at all this and uh, analyse it? I would st- I was going to say almost stand exactly beside May's point. Um, I think we even the way the story has been covered, and this is not unique to Ireland in, in any respect, this is a systemic issue globally for, for decades, issues of migration, but the way the media has, has framed it is who was driving the car at what these are important I'm not dismissing these are very important details to have but who was driving the car at what point did they leave at what border did they cross yes that's one conversation to have but actually if we're going to stop it exactly as I said we need to widen the ambit of this conversation and look at well why are are these people deciding and as you said the two percent of people even knowing the dangers that they would face would still choose to make the journey and 98% would still choose ex- ex- yeah yeah the 98% would, would still choose knowing yeah. that but yeah. how do you migrate i wonder to europe i mean we know what the rules are for canada know what the rules are for australia but there i'm not aware of the rules if i were 
Vietnamese or Chinese or Libyan and wanted to come. Yes, Kieran. There's actually a very good piece in the Sunday Times. Um, today it's, um, uh, it's, it's written by a number of their um, contributors, journalists in the UK. And it kind of goes through some of the stories of some of the Vietnamese people um, who were tragically caught up in this uh, awful situation. But it also makes the point that... Uh, Vietnamese, are, they're coming through Russia on tourist visas, essentially. Something like 43,000 Vietnamese entered Russia as tourists in 2017, and most of them kept heading west, um, as indeed was the case here. And I suppose when, when this came to the fore initially, this this um, this awful issue, uh, we thought that maybe this uh, container travelled right across Europe and, and yeah. people were, were housed on this container um, the whole way across. But it doesn't seem to have been the case at all. In fact, some of them were, um, there was one person living in Paris, there was another person living in Brussels, one person in Paris had been there since 2018 and paid £11,000 uh, for the journey um, to the UK. There was somebody else uh, living in Paris was was actually posting messages on social media about it being uh, so beautiful there. Um, that lady we were mentioning earlier who sent text messages to her parents, um, I think I saw in one of the papers she'd either been deported once or twice from the UK yeah. and she was trying once again to yeah. get back in. Yeah. And her parents had uh, had paid £30,000 yeah, um, for her to, to actually uh, <clears throat> you know, make the journey to get a new life uh, in the UK. So... There are different stories for, for different people. They're right. taking different routes. But it would seem, in terms of Vietnamese, that a popular uh, way of uh, heading for the West is to get a tourist visa, enter Russia, Russia, and then move on from there. Right. And that just is not the right way of managing our needs and mm-hmm. the reality of migration. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is the UNDP's point about how Europe needs to actually get real. Um, what we're obviously seeing is European governments prefer to just allow this um, notion to take hold that, you know, of difference and that people are trying to come here and take our jobs. No, the reality is that the economies are absorbing people. It's not right to have them using means that aren't appropriate for their protection and for the regulation of markets. Mm. Yeah, can can I come back to you and then I'll come back to to you um, as well. What was the plan? Or what would the plan be if you had somebody in the back of a truck? Does does it meet people who open the back of the truck? Or how does all that work? So in a lot of cases when they have a clear destination, so we'll say in this case it appeared to be the UK, that actually it's in a lot of cases the truck doesn't... Uh, travel far from the port and we saw that clearly in this a half an hour outside the port usually they're opened officially Um, I should preface that with saying there's kind of two types so we'll say the hard case truck is usually indicative of a, um, an organised crime element. Like a, a What strategy. do you mean by so a hard like case? In this case it was a freezer lorry that would have to be locked and bolted from the back whereas there's those trucks that have the kind of soft skin that, like a um, like a curtain that you can like pull back tarpaulin. which can indicate um, just opportunistic <clears throat> uh, people which we often hear reports if you listen to the English news or around ports man seen jumping or children yes, you know yeah, yeah. Um, which is usually opportunistic but in the case that there seems to be this organised element or at least the element that somebody has to physically open the truck um, they don't usually drive far from the port and they release them People know they're being released, so there's usually a collection, uh, you know, that will be staged around this. So this seems to, to, at least at this point, illustrate those hallmarks that it was stopped, they were to be let off. And unfortunately, in this case, um, the, the, 
they were dead, that they couldn't get off. Um, w- there doesn't seem to be a lot in the media about how the ambulance actually came out yeah. when they were there. Yeah. Um, I have my own views on that. but uh, Which are? That, which are that it, the person who opened the truck got such a fright actually rang for once did mm. the right thing. Well, that certainly seems yeah. to be the suggestions in the report. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know that you picked out, Eddie, uh, one um, article today. Uh, it's not directly the same, but it's not that different in some ways about um, migration across the border between Mexico and the United States. Yeah. And it seems we have huge sympathy for the Mexicans and think, you know, that Donald Trump should forget his wall and all that. And yet when it comes to our borders, we take a different view. That could be called absolute hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, they, they if you use the wall as a metaphor, yeah. uh, the vote by the Fine Gael uh, uh, MEPs yesterday was put up a wall. Uh, in effect, yeah. Uh, now you know their defence is actually, I know the defense, that the information but, but, would go out also, to everybody. But yeah. also, we're not we're not fools, Marin. Um, I think Brendan O'Connor has a very interesting piece today, and he's really saying now is not the time to complicate the borders of the UK and Ireland. And it's the issue of borders. Um, it's a cross-border gang linked to the lorry deaths. It there's the US border, the number of children dying on the border. And also, interestingly, the Cavan County Council fails to take down the signs vilifying the Quinn Industrial Holdings people. So there were posters. You would link all those... It's about borders. Mm. It's about the lawlessness that occurs on borders Mm. once you have them. And Brendan O'Connor is making the point, for God's sake, whatever we do, let's not have a border. Mm. Because yeah. um, once you have a border, you have lawlessness. Yeah. And just on the one or two other kind of elements of the, the story um, uh, and Vietnamese, I fear actually that the, the telephone call, that the people may well be Chinese and that the telephone call could be from another truck because they said there were 100 people in, in a convoy coming over. But during the week, there was a, a Chinese man based in London who's involved in, 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 in let's call it, in, in, in helping uh, deal with this thing. And he said, snakeheads in China, in a village in China. And he said, a snakehead could be a local teacher, could be anybody. And one of the things they say to the people locally is that with certain events in England, like the birth, the, the marriage of Meghan and, and Harry, uh, Harry yeah. or the birth of Archie, do you follow me? Any kinds of events. Each of these brings an amnesty for anybody who is illegally in the country. So this is your chance. And so what you get is, this goes out into the village, people say, well, God, this is the time of everyone. Yeah, let's go. Because once we're there, there'll be an amnesty. Uh, and he, he was he, he was giving those kinds of... Yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that's incentivising people to come. But I agree a lot with Maeve that, you know, this can be handled as a case that's investigated. People are charged with manslaughter. They'll go to jail or whatever happens to if this. If they're and found that's the, guilty. That, yeah, and that's the <laughs> case, that case, case sorted. Yeah. But really, the scale of this during the week, Martin Hayden, I think his name is... In, um, an Irish guy was based in London and he was head of the British anti-slavery and trafficking um, entity in Britain. He's based in Limerick now. He said the scale of it is 150 billion a year mm. and 40 million people being trafficked. That's a lot of people for, for, for and it's labor, a lot of money. Slave labour, prostitution, domestic slavery. And he went through the whole, the whole lot. So it's on a vast scale. So therefore, 
the solution, to, to use a, a very optimistic word, has to be on something like the level of the UN, the World Bank, some new international global institutions. Right. Otherwise, we're, we're fighting an uphill battle with it. Sheila? Yeah, I, I was, when I was driving in today, I was kind of always trying to ask myself the so what, you know. So we have this incident, and if you look back from 2000 on, we have numerous incidents of this nature, and what happens after them? And I think, while I agree with your point, there has to be a, a global element about this. We as a nation can really do something constructive, and it's a horrible thing for, you know, some people that have to die for, for us to, to have that impetus to do something, but I think it shouldn't be left doing nothing. And I think we have to communicate with people that aren't part of our, you know, legal economy, that black economy, that grey economy, in languages that they understand, so they're native languages, but also in a way that isn't threatening, because there are people that would like to either go home, that they found that the situation is not what they expected, yeah. but they don't know how to in, in, engage with the state. There's people that would like to actually maybe um, legal, actually uh, to be able to legalise their situation here. We have talks in America over that. Why can't we have similar talks yeah. for th those yeah. communities I here? Yeah. I agree completely yeah. that it's not a security, security uh, securitised solution that we have to have this, but we, we no, as a nation... The security solution is very important. Though, no, of course. No, I don't, look, as a security expert, I think it's huge. But I also think that, that when the prosecution, which I'd like to think will happen, they're really advanced in this very quickly. This is, uh, I suppose, uh, piggybacking on the excellent engagement between police forces globally. So to just put that aside, not negating that it is, the, uh, if prosecutions are achieved, that can't be the end of it. Okay. Something else has yeah. to happen yeah. to, 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 to at least make good of such a bad yeah. situation. I, I want to come on to, to another topic fairly quickly, but before we leave that, I mean, part of Europe's... <clears throat> reaction in Libya, apart from the fact that the Americans had interfered and gone in and bombed and all Iraq war and all those dreadful things. Um, what, what we tried to do, as I understand it, was put pressure on the Libyan government to not let them out, so to speak. And they're held in camps. And I gather these camps are not very pretty. Well, when, so I was there 2014 and there was the same level of migration. We resided in a place called Tujura and as the analyst I used to get a lot of information on dead bodies coming up ashore really before they were headline news anywhere else. Um, but at that stage, a lot of people stopped in Libya, which is a natural transition. They regroup their money and pay for the next bit to get yeah, across. Yeah, they pay to get across the Sahara. Exactly, so they yeah. pay in instalments, you know, um, and, and then they get to Libya and they used to work illegally, but still within the system. Yeah. Um, and they had some level of quality of life, but when it became camps, and to be fair, there are deportations, so a lot of people now get that far and are deported back, so you don't have the same numbers. That opportunity wasn't made available to them in the past. But in many cases, they try again. So they go back, they regroup. But for those that are in those camps, the conditions are harrowing. Um, and the, when we say the Libyan government, it's there's so many different what uh, is the Libyan exactly what it and I think I these are bigger questions that yeah. we have to have. The European Parliament resolution that was voted down by the two votes explicitly said in its preamble that people intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard, which of course is being funded massively by the EU, are being transferred to detention centres where they are systematically exposed to arbitrary detention in inhumane conditions and where torture and other ill treatment, including rape, as well as arbitrary killings and exploitation are 
endemic. So talk about how the EU is contributing to trafficking right. and all yeah, their types of things. Okay. Can we just say that um, we mentioned the company that owned the trailer. They said they had no idea what it was going to be used for and clearly uh, a man has been charged but he hasn't been found guilty of anything. But uh, kind of connected into that. We've, we've stories about uh, people coming here and um, Mr Ring's fury about what happened or didn't happen uh, on Ackle Island. And there was a very interesting thing in that poll today, which surprised me, but um, how many people don't want Lisa Smith brought home? This is the opposite end of the case now. And, and I presume they're, they're afraid of her. Mm. But we also heard about the radicalised medical students in Galway. Now, yeah. this is your area, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, um, I was just saying this morning that I, um, a few days ago, had a roundtable meeting with uh, Professor Louise Richardson, uh, the Irish political scientist head of Oxford University. Yeah. She's the global expert on political terrorism. So if we're taking anyone's views I th- on this, I think she's a good source uh, to turn yeah. to. And she was speaking exactly to cases of, you know, returning citizens home, be it in the UK or uh, the cases like we've seen in Ireland. And her views on it, and I would stand by it, without ultimately at the end of the day they are Irish citizens and we do not have the power nor should any government have the power to revoke citizenship and have essentially make someone stateless. Stateless, yeah. However, that is not to say someone can return home freely without you know the law the rule of law applying to them. But particularly in the cases of children, her view, and I stand by it also, is that children, Irish citizens, should be returned home if they're living in, in these conditions. And if, she, if they're not returned home, they are we're actually creating a new generation of... Uh, you know, Resentment. Children, exactly, which, which we've seen globally, you know, yeah. grows into you know new terrorist organisations. However, returning citizens who have potentially engaged in terrorist uh, activities or who we know have directly engaged in them, you know, that's why we have a judiciary system. And we hopefully put our trust in, and uh, hope in our own system that they return home and face the rule of law here but regarding the children. But yes, the case in uh, Galway, that that we've seen regarding the radicalisation. Yeah, just to clarify that yeah. for people. Yeah, what it so was. Um, and I believe for myself, I've just I've come to come to light with it t- today. But two, from my knowledge, that two two students, trainee doctors, and they have uh, died in the conflict in Syria. But they were radicalised and they went to to fight. But we have seen this. One of my issues with again how the narratives are framed within the media is that we're you know we see Galway the Galway University in the headlines, but actually we see this all over regional blocks, particularly in the in the EU. We see it all over the UK, and also mentioned we see the, what the, the radicalisation of students in situ. Yeah, and yeah. we do a lot of research on this in my own department regarding the radicalisation of students and actually young teenagers who are you know drawn to this through boredom, loss of identity, you know, loss of culture, and they are radicalised online and you know come over. So I don't like the tarnishing of any university or. But however, it it is something that we, and it ties back to our point that we, we said previously, 
that are not only the security issue has to be dealt with regarding human trafficking, but I think it was a you know very good point that was brought up. Our eyes need to be open to the fact that this is happening. And whether we like it or not, or people stand by this or not, we need to speak with these groups and these uh, organisations on, on their terms in order to get a, a holistic and, sense of what's happening. You know, yeah. we don't like, we might like to know what the response is, but we need to know if we're actually going to deal with this in a tangent. I mean, should we be massively surprised that universities are the sort of breeding ground for radicalisation? Always, I mean, always us. I mean, I remember when I was editor of the University Observer in UCD at the time of 9-11, the Muslim Society in UCD came under huge surveillance because of there was a group of people and it caused uproar on campus mm. and it was genuine sort of, that sort of underlying kind of fear of culture running through the student population at the time because this obviously came to light. Yeah. But it's reflected again here in what we're reading here. We saw it through Oxford and Cambridge because you're dealing with the brightest and the best. Yeah. A lot of the sort of radical She's sitting beside you. Oh, I agree with them. I'm sure some of your students are probably approached by some of the more radical regimes. Well, I mean, we were talking to John DeCarry yesterday Mm. he was talking about how he was recruited and how they recruited Mm. and how he recruited. You were going to come in there, Sheila. So I had the, and I say privilege because people don't have to speak to me. I had the privilege to speak with um, people that had fought with Islamic State or had conducted terrorist attacks in Bosnia-Herzegovina last year. And I really think there is a benefit in um, speaking with them and listening to them. Mm -hmm. And I preface that listening to them because there was many grievances that they said had led to them to make the decisions they had. Grievances that probably they aren't given the platform to discuss in in not only in Bosnian society but I can see it reflected here too and I think Can I just have the other ear in my head saying another wet liberal you know these people were medieval in their destruction of their fellow human yeah. beings Well I, I think if we think we have all the, the uh, answers as experts or you know as analysts I think more fool us I think we have to I studied under a guy David Kennedy in America and he said one of the biggest voices in the criminal justice system that was absent was criminals themselves and I think the same thing for terrorist research it's based largely unfortunately I don't have the figures but it's largely based on uh, the lack of empirical so little uh, research ever I think in any other field being based on the lack of empirical research so I would argue that actually speaking with people that are involved is key to finding um, at least some sort of uh, common ground to have these discussions on and I think this is very clear in relation to the question about um whether Lisa Smith should come back or not. And I think if we don't have these discussions, it's quite easy to have a black and white response to it. I had the opportunity to uh, speak with formers in Turkey, uh, both neo-Nazis and uh, jihadis, just there earlier in the week. They all had differing opinions on, you know, what the stance is, so there's no clear-cut reaction. Um, But I think... Where were you talking to these people? At an international symposium in Ankara. Very colourful life. I think think the reality of it is is we have to have these discussions but we also have to be mature as a nation and say uh, she or any other person and I would say any other person with Irish citizenship not just the Lisa Smith that we all see in the headlines but anybody else that uh, can be brought back should be brought back and the state should have yeah. in place the ability to cope with that in whatever sense. Yeah, and, and how do you cope with it because I was very surprised at the, at the percentage that said more or less letters she's made her bed, let her lie on it. Um, How can you know that you're not starting something that you cannot control if somebody is so 
committed and full of conviction for their for their religion. Essentially, it seems to have been for her. Uh, you don't just don't throw your religion overboard and say, oh, "I've changed my mind." No, yeah. And actually, when you speak to former, some people do, but very many people don't. But I think the first thing is that she has to be spoken to. And I would say the British have a very good model in this respect. That's not just security based. It's actually much more uh, the the state come in with supports and have the conversations. Right. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to build up that capacity that it's not seen as a traditional security uh, response okay. and that we build, build a, a more holistic team to deal with it. Okay, Eddie? No, I was just going to make a, a second one remark is about the poll. So there's a poll that yes. says 50% of the people yeah. don't agree with it. And I just hope that policy is not based on a poll. Um, God forbid. I, I, you know, public policy is determined by the will of the people. <laughs> yeah, but no, but I'm, I, that's what I'm getting at. I think there's a, there's a need for political leadership that's enlightened and that that is informed by the kinds of things these the two le- women are saying here. Yeah. Um, and all, and, and otherwise, it's a populist uh, solution and the politicians will avoid it. I think also the narrative that we all always should make the point that when we talk about a return <laughs> home, it's not, you know the long walk to freedom home. You know, it's a return home, as I said at the start, to face the judiciary here and the rule of law here. It's not, you know, a complete freedom uh, society. And Mm -hmm. so, of course, um, it's a a very... um, it's a very pinnacle point to make to say no one just gives up their ideology or their or their religion. Yeah. And, and that we, we should entirely recognise and that's why when our citizens are brought home in, in this case and we don't revoke citizenship, the rule of law and the judiciary should be the, the, the courts and the people to deal with it or the right. branch of government to deal with it. Okay, just before I go to the break, can I come back to you, Sheila? Um, if you take what's been happening with direct provision... And if you take the responsibilities that we have discussed, that we that we have, and that numerically we're dealing with a drop in the ocean, pardon the word, in, under the circumstances, how do you view direct provision? I, from a personal point of view, I don't... Uh, uh, I don't think it's a positive way of engaging people and integrating people into Irish society. Um, I think it's too slow, I think, for everybody concerned. Um, And I think decisions should be made faster to get people into some level of integration. And that means... Uh, 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 you know, um, giving people the sense of employment, giving people the ability to to create lives for themselves, and and the numbers, because there's a, an argument now that has come up in a number uh, of small towns saying that the proportionality of people suggested by the Department of Justice uh, to go into town or sometimes out on the edge of town. Yeah, I think we shouldn't be surprised. I think if we look at headline news, there's been a lot of the fear we spoke about today associated with you know, the Libyan crisis and and everything like that. So I think we're a product of our own making in a way Mm. um, and that we actually have to listen to those communities because with this kind of, I shouldn't say emergence, but at least kind of the populist emergence of far-right sentiment, it's very easy for communities who voice concerns to be dismissed as racist or um, supporting far-right. We have to listen to their, I sound like a real, like we have to listen to people, but we have to actually listen to the concerns and break up what's actually valid concerns of communities versus... um, 
versus or Nijak. Exactly. Nijak, There's yeah. a town in, I'm going to say it's either Trim or at Boy in Mead. Um, I spoke to a gentleman. They wanted to take families. They had a whole setup that the real community wanted to take. I think they could house like between five and ten. Doesn't sound like a huge number, but yeah. if you have willing communities that yeah. want to do Go that, they, they need to be given the opportunity to, yeah. to do that. I, think, I can't remember, was it the Pope or, or was it Dermot Martin that kind of raised the issue that if if some if if somebody offered uh, a, a one in every parish in the country, uh, you'd solve the problem in a com- yeah. completely different yeah. way. Well, I mean, I just <clears throat> like we're obviously talking about the, the specific instances of small towns around the country that have, have kind of raised up against this. I mean, I I live in Drumcondra, so my walk into work is through Dublin One, or my cycle through which has the highest population and the highest concentration of asylum seekers and kind of, you know, people who are living in direct provision, not necessarily direct provision, but certainly in emergency accommodation. Right. And yet some of these towns have barely zero. So there is an inequality that's already at play there. But yet the talk from some people that our Irish culture is under threat, when you look at the actual numbers that are in play... They're minuscule. Okay. We took a policy decision many years ago in this country to actually distribute, if you like, it's a terrible word, but to distribute these people around the country into um, various locations, not just to sort of ghettoise them in Dublin or parts of Cork, uh, maybe. I think that was the right decision, but unfortunately the implementation of it has been has been all wrong. We've yeah. got ourselves down there. And unfortunately they've been ghettoised in institutions and that's just in no way the way to deal with the situation where we should actually be providing for people's dignity and in Ireland of all places to continue a culture of institutionalising people that we actually don't want to see on our streets, in our communities, because we prefer to portray a different sense of ourselves to ourselves or to the world. It's a continuation of a very problematic historical culture. Yeah, okay. and I think, sorry, just one point, I think we've always prided ourselves on a country of integrating communities mm-hmm. historically and we often uh, refer to that when we say well we don't have a huge radicalisation pro- uh, um, in the same numbers that we've had elsewhere and yet what we, we're doing the direct opposite now with new communities, it should be much better managed, we have a proven track record that it can happen and, and we, we've no other excuse than to actually um, do the right thing that we kind of did in the past mm-hmm. rather than what did we do in the past? You know, we integrated communities yeah. approved, and we draw on that when incidents happen. We don't have this problem because we have Muslim communities integrated or Jewish communities historically. And then we, we're breaking this now, breaking this kind of tr- past positive tradition okay. into yeah. ghettoizing. And I suppose we don't want to bring our problematic past into another area. Exactly. So we've stopped and we've apologised for institutionalising certain groups mm. and now we're doing it all over again. <laughs> okay, listen, uh, thank you very much, Sheila. I know you're leaving us now. Uh, Sheila Brady, Security Analyst at SAR Consultancy, isn't it? Okay. Thank you very, very much indeed. And we'll be back after this. That was great. The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio.